those who reject the idea of the resurrection or do not believe in the bodily re uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ are not Christians. There are some things that are very uh, fundamental to the Christian faith, and of course one of which is the resurrection. And if you do not believe in the resurrection, then you are not a Christian. And <clears throat> those who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ should not be called Christians. You see, the resurrection proves the claims that Jesus made during His earthly ministry. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. The Pharisees were outraged because of this, but Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. <clears throat> in John chapter 8, verse 53, and in verse 58, Jesus said that He was from above. And you'll remember also in that passage that as they questioned Him, they said, are you greater than our father Abraham, which is, was, is dead? All the prophets are dead. Who are you making yourself to be? Who do you think you are? <clears throat> and Jesus said in verse 56, He said of John chapter 8, He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. You know, of course, reading the Scripture from the perspective of a believer is very different than hearing the Scriptures from the mindset of an unbeliever. And I encourage you, as I always do, when you read the Scripture, try to put yourself back in that situation. What were the people thinking when they heard this? What was Jesus saying? How would you have heard it if you were not a believer, if you did not know the Scriptures? <clears throat> and so here He says, Your father, speaking to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, rejoiced when I came on the scene, and he saw it and was glad. Are you communicating with Abraham somehow? What's going on here? You're just confusing. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? I mean, it's kind of like, get real. And they ask this question, you're not even fifty. Have you seen Abraham? Now whether they're asking that in sarcasm or truly asking in incredulity, you know, Jesus says unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, man, and you can just see just the temperature and the, the thermometer is mercury rising and blowing out of the thermometer here. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. What had Jesus just said? Jesus said, I was before Abraham. And he uses the term that God gave to Moses when Moses was on the backside of the desert. God called him to go back to the children of Israel there in Egypt and to lead them out. And Moses says, well, when I go to them, they're going to say, well, who sent you? You know, who, who told you to lead us out of Egypt? God told Moses, you tell them that I am sent you. That was a revered term. God used that as His name given to Moses. And so when Jesus here appropriated that name to Himself, you talk about a cultural appropriation. This was divine appropriation, and it blew their minds. Before Abraham was, I am. There, He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the Son of God. <clears throat> In Matthew 11, Verses 25 through 27, Jesus claims that He is the key to the knowledge of His Father. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27, I'll read you that passage. Jesus said there, <clears throat> it says, At that time Jesus answered, and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save or except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him." Wow. <clears throat> How do you know the Father? 
You're not going to come up with that knowledge on your own. You come to that knowledge through the Son, through Jesus Christ. No man knoweth the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. That's an amazing truth. And Jesus said in another place, No man cometh unto the Father, what? But by me. And so Jesus claims that he is the key to the knowledge of his Father. John 14, 6 is that other passage where he says, No man comes unto me, comes unto the Father but by me. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, <clears throat> Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And of course, what does Hebrews chapter 1 say? We've been memorizing the book of Hebrews. And you'll remember Hebrews chapter 1? God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. In the very next verse, who being the brightness of his glory, and the what? And the express image of his person. That's who Jesus is. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. He is the exact representation of his person. And the message of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is indeed God in human flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. <clears throat> the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the message that angered the religious leaders, of course, and led them to crucify Jesus. John chapter 19 and verse 7. John 19 verse 7, the Jews answered Pilate and said, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. There. But the resurrection <clears throat> proves that Jesus was whom he said to be. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have the power of life and death. We talked about this morning. He said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. And this commandment have I received of my Father. And so <clears throat> Jesus claimed to have the power of life and death. We see in the Gospels that he raised the dead. No one else was doing that. John 10, 18, where he makes that claim. He would lay down his life and take it up himself. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus stated that he would rise again in three days. There, and he used the illustration of the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it up again. And the, the Jews, again, looked at the temple and said, this building was so many years in making, and you're just going to break it down and build it again in three days? It says, but they understood not that he spake of the temple of his body. Jesus claimed also to have the power to forgive sins. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, it says here, in verse 2, Jesus had gone over the Sea of Galilee in a ship, and it says, Behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying in a bed. Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, imagine you being there. Whenever Jesus traveled, he attracted a crowd. A lot of the common folk would come out to hear him. Many times people would bring sick folk for him to heal. And there was never a sick person that came to Jesus that was turned away. This was, no, <clears throat> this was no exception. Here comes a man that was paralyzed or had some type of a, a weakness there. He's brought in bed, and Jesus, seeing this man, did not say, you know, rise up and walk. First thing he said was, son, be of good cheer. I forgive you of your sins. What would you have thought? What in the world has he just said? Behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, 
This man blasphemeth. I mean, who can forgive sins but God? And this man just said, you're forgiven of your sins? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, that's a, that would have been a frightening thing to realize back then. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, answered their thoughts and said, Why think ye evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? Which is easier? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. <laughs> which is easier? Now, they couldn't see the spiritual realm. They couldn't see his sins cleansed. But Jesus said to this man, I forgive you of your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Folks, that right there is salvation. What did that man, what was that man's greatest need? Was it his paralysis be healed? Well, that would have fixed him for the remainder of his earthly life, but what about the next? And Jesus looked at that man and said, I forgive you of your sins. The religious leaders were up in arms. Only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? And Jesus looked at those leaders and says, well, which of you can do either? Is it easier to heal a man or is it easier to forgive his sins? I can do both. And he did. Jesus forgave the sins of the man with palsy, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Just in case you miss it, it's there three times. You can't miss it. An individual who does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ denies that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. The resurrection proves the claims that Jesus made during His earthly ministry. It proves that indeed He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. But the resurrection also explains the meaning of Jesus' death. <clears throat> explains the meaning of Jesus' death. If Jesus is the Son of God and He rose from the dead, then what was the point of dying? Now, someone might think that. They think, well, okay, if Jesus is God, He can rise from the dead. Then what was the point of His dying? Well, the resurrection explains the meaning of Jesus' death. You know, the disciples didn't understand that. We saw that there in the account of John. They stumbled at that for a while. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, there, Peter's great confession that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then six verses later in verse 22, in the same chapter, Peter rebukes the Lord after Jesus told the disciples that he had come to die. <laughs> Peter said, oh, no, nothing doing. That'll not be the case. The Lord rebukes Peter. He had come to die. Luke 24 and verse 21 describes the dejection of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Well, they did not understand. It really was a stumbling block to them. They were expecting Jesus to set up this earthly kingdom. I mean, if you can feed 5,000 people at, with anything... And you can raise the dead, well, you can have an indestructible army. Army's got to be fed, and they have to get fixed. Well, here we go. Rome's not got a chance. But that wasn't God's plan. And the answer to the meaning of Jesus' death is clearly presented in the New Testament. If he'd wanted to avoid death, well, certainly he could. And he says so in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. He says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? When did Jesus say that? Well, when Judas led the religious leaders to take Jesus by night there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter draws his sword and goes after the servant of the high priest and whacks off his ear. It's probably a little dark. He missed the center of his head and just got an ear. But Jesus said, Put your sword up. If, if, if I wanted to be defended... My father would give me 12 legions of angels. The death, of, <clears throat> the death of Christ, its meaning, 
Jesus had set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem back in Luke chapter 9. And he did so because he says there, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to die to pay a debt, a ransom to redeem, to buy back. And the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts is the same message that Jesus gave his disciples there between his resurrection and his ascension. He expounded unto them from the Old Testament scriptures all the things concerning himself there on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus. And then when he met with his disciples, he explained to them, he taught them the things concerning himself. And Peter preached this in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Weeks later, here's Peter preaching this message of the gospel. Paul preached this in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. It was his message to the Corinthians in chapter 1 Corinthians 15. Peter and John proclaimed it in their epistles. Throughout the New Testament, the resurrection is preached in the gospel. The answer to the meaning of Christ's death is clearly presented. Why did Jesus have to die? And then why did he rise from the dead? The resurrection of Jesus Christ causes us to reflect on the doctrine of the atonement. It's the atonement. Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 and verse 29 is described as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Of course, as we've been going through Hebrews, we've been talking about sacrifices an awful lot. We've been talking about priests an awful lot. And we see the significance there of Jesus Christ as the ultimate high priest who offers the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. And of course, the resurrection brings us face to face with the doctrine of sin and the wrath of God against sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us. For God hath made the Son to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that he might be, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The individual who who rejects the resurrection of Jesus Christ has no understanding of the meaning of the death of Christ. See, the the resurrection demonstrates the sufficiency of Jesus' death. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Romans 10 and verse 9 says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There the scriptures clearly state that God raised Jesus from the dead. Remember on the cross in John chapter 19 and verse 30, Jesus cried out, It is finished. It's finished. And he was speaking of something far greater than his physical expiration. What did he speak of? He was speaking of his redemptive work, which he had come to accomplish. But how do we know that his work was accomplished? What had Jesus come to do? Jesus came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. The Bible says he came to give his life a ransom for many. And there on the cross, Jesus Christ was paying the sin debt that we owed. What is the penalty for sin? The Bible says the penalty of sin is death. It was from creation all the way through, and it always will be. The wages of sin is death. God said, Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The penalty of sin, God's penalty for sin is death. And of course, Jesus came to bear that penalty for us so that God might reconcile us to himself. 
just a couple of days ago as I had the opportunity to share the gospel message with this man, I was explaining this to him. How that man's sin separates him from God. Yet God in His love and in His wisdom before the foundation of the world planned that His Son Jesus Christ would come and stand in my place to take my sins upon Him so that God, instead of pouring out His wrath upon me, His wrath was poured out on His Son there on the cross. Jesus was the offering for sin. He was the sin offering. Jesus Christ became sin for me. And when I put my faith and trust in Him, His righteousness is imputed to my account so that I stand before God justified as if I had never sinned. God looks at me and He claims that I am just and that I am righteous and therefore I have fellowship with God. I am reconciled to my Creator because the sin debt has been paid, paid by Jesus Christ. And God accepted that sacrifice, and the resurrection is proof of that. You see, Jesus died. They took His body, they placed it in a tomb. And if His work had ended there, if, his, if He had never risen from the dead, if He had remained in the tomb, His work would not have been complete. His death would not have been sufficient. But the resurrection proves that God was satisfied with what He had done. That God accepted His payment on our account and He was pleased. That Isaiah 53 speaks of God being, it pleased God to what? To bruise Him. And that doesn't mean that God was in glee rubbing his hands as some type of a sadist. That's not what that means. It says that God, it means that God was satisfied. That sin debt was paid. And God's justice had been upheld in showing us mercy because His wrath had been poured out for sin on Jesus Christ in our place. God's raising Jesus from the dead proved that Christ's redemptive work satisfied the justice of God, and the empty tomb is God's declaration to all creation that He was satisfied with the work of His Son. What had Jesus done? He had come to live on this earth. He had perfectly fulfilled all the demands of the law. He lived a sinless life. But not only that, He bore the penalty of the law. He took the penalty in our place. And Hebrews talks about Jesus as a perfect sacrifice. A better sacrifice than all of those Old Testament sacrifices, which could never take away sin, which could not cleanse the conscience. In Acts... Chapter 2, as Peter is there preaching at Pentecost. Next, chapter 2 and verse 27. Peter quotes from the Psalms. Of course, we've gone over this psalm in, in Hebrews. In verse, beginning of verse 25, Peter quotes from the psalm. He says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption." Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And of course, I love the explanation here. This is such a rich passage where Peter says, uh, Folks, David is not speaking about himself because his grave is just around the corner. Okay, His sepulcher is still here. You can go visit his tomb and his bones are still in the grave. But of whom 
was David speaking. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And he speaks of David in his explanation in verse 31. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Prophesied there in the Old Testament. Jesus had accomplished there what the law could not do. We quoted that this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. Because if they had, they'd have stopped offering them. That's the next verse. But they were ineffective. The law could not make man righteous. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, or He says, and for sin, which means a sin offering condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The law could not make man righteous. Now, the law was holy, it was just and good. There was nothing wrong with the law. Romans 7. But the law was weak in what? In what it had to work with. Man was sinful. Man is a lawbreaker. In fact, the law was given to what? To expose man's sin, to define sin, and to show man his need of Christ. Remember, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to focus our our, our attention on the one who could solve the problem because all the law could do would be to condemn us. The law says guilty, guilty, guilty. That's all the law can say to us. Jesus came to accomplish that which the law could not do in that because of his death and his resurrection, I now, through faith, have His righteousness. There it is, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. And God justifies us, declares us to be righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And this was the great burden of Paul in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10. A guy asked me this week, he said, why do the Jews hate Christians? Or I said, well, let me show you what Paul say in Romans. He says, the Jews have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness which God requires. They being ignorant of the righteousness of God have gone about to establish their own righteousness. Romans 10 verse 3. And they going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone that believeth. The Jews rejected Jesus, and therefore they rejected the righteousness that God accepts. And God does not accept man's righteousness. What does he say of man's righteousness? All our righteousness is all heaped together, amounts to nothing but a heap of filthy rags. Does that mean that you shouldn't help the little old lady across the street? No, it doesn't mean you shouldn't. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but it won't save you. You can give to good causes, you can do good things, but it won't save you because that's not the kind of righteousness that God accepts. The only kind of righteousness God accepts is the righteousness of His Son, which must be imputed to your account by faith. The Jews rejected Jesus, so what did they do? They went about to establish another standard. Hey, if I can't reach this one, I'll make it my own. So they made a standard they could reach, and then they declared themselves to be righteous. That's why you have the Pharisee there in the temple. Praying with himself, saying, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like other men that creep in the corner, the publican. Lord, you must surely be pleased with me. I give tithes of all I possess, and I do this and this and this for you. What a wonderful day. And the publican over in the corner wouldn't even lift his face up toward heaven, but smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who was justified? 
The man who justified himself or the man who begged for mercy? And it was the man who begged for mercy who was justified. God is not looking for your good works to save you because you cannot save yourself. You must receive by faith the righteousness of Christ, which is the only righteousness that God accepts. The righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, <clears throat> the resurrection demonstrates the sufficiency of Christ's death. Jesus had accomplished that which the law could not do. And the resurrection also proclaims the victory of Jesus Christ. Of course, during his life, Jesus conquered sin and temptation. There he was. He was even tempted of the devil. Y'all think you have a hard time with temptation? Think temptation is sometimes just so strong? Believe me, there's none of us who have ever been tempted by Satan himself. There's a full force of evil in your face. What does God tell us about temptation? He says, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There was Jesus, tempted by the devil himself. And of course, victorious. Jesus lived a sinless life. He was tempted by Satan. He was victorious over temptation. He did no sin, as Peter says. Neither was guile found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he was, though he was even tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And because of his sinlessness, Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus had sinned. He would have had to bear the penalty of the law for his own sin. He could not have been an acceptable sacrifice. Yet he was without sin. He was the perfect and acceptable sacrifice. He was our substitute. And because of his resurrection, Jesus, the Bible tells us, has an unchangeable, eternal priesthood. Made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember going through that back in chapter 7 of Hebrews. He is a high priest who continueth ever. Remember the Old Testament priests. They were one after another. Why? And they could not, by a reason of death, they did not continue. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able to do what I'm unable to do. To finish the verse, wherefore <laughs> he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is our ever living, eternal high priest. Jesus, he conquered sin and, and temptation. He was victorious over the devil and all his angels. He was victorious of those who opposed him. But in his resurrection, Jesus conquered death and the grave. And you'll remember in Hebrews, why did Jesus come? It says in chapter 2, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, took on human flesh, that through death he might do what? He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Who's afraid of death? I'll tell you who's afraid of death, the one who doesn't know Jesus. Listen, if you know Jesus, you know the resurrection and the life. Remember what Jesus said to Mary and Martha when Lazarus had died? Oh, you're... you're your brother is going to rise again. Oh, well, we know he'll rise again at the resurrection. Jesus looked at him and said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. And here he took part. He took flesh. He came. He was incarnate that he might die, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of the death, that is the devil, and deliver them or us who through fear of death were all our lifetimes up to the point of salvation, what? Subject to bondage. 
Good stuff, folks. Man. Now, in his resurrection, Jesus conquered death in the grave. He conquered sin through his sinless life. He conquered death in the grave. That was prophesied. I'm going to read you these two verses. Isaiah 25, verse 8. It says this, He will swallow up death in victory. You know, Handel incorporated that, those, that scripture into, in, into the Messiah, his great oratorio. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. And also Hosea, Hosea 13 and verse 14, right there at the end of the book of or the end of the book of Hosea. He says here, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. And pity shall be hid from mine eyes. Or repentance there in your translation will be hid from mine eyes. I will not spare. What is he saying in that verse? I am going to be the end of death. I will be the one who destroys the grave, eternal life for those who are the children of God. There is no death to fear. There is no grave to fear. The Bible tells us that the last enemy is what? Death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 Paul says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's going to be a great day. There's not one of us that hasn't been touched at some point in our lives by death. And every one of us, barring the return of Jesus Christ during our lifetime, is going to have an appointment with death. That's the last enemy, death. But death is going to be destroyed. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Hebrews chapter 2, and we just read those verses. Why he took upon himself, he would destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Where did death come from? Folks, Romans chapter 5, it came from sin. And death by sin. Wherefore, as by one man, Romans 5.12, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, or death as a result of sin, God's prescription, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Jesus, in his resurrection, conquered death and the grave. The resurrection explains the coming of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus tell his disciples? It's essential that I go away. If I go not away, the Spirit will not come. But if I go away, the Father will send you another comforter who will be with you always. John chapter 7. Of course, the realization of that in Acts chapter 1. Chapter 2. The resurrection explains the coming of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection is also the assurance that God is going to judge the world. Let me tell you something. It's a day I'm waiting for. Look at the world around us. Think, man, where is justice? Where is it? Hey, listen. What did Jesus say? What does God say? Vengeance is mine. I will recompense. God's recompense isn't on my schedule, it's on His. But in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, Acts 17, 31, there is Paul speaking on Mars Hill. And he talks about, he's, he's speaking to these people who have all these idols all over the place. He's declaring unto them the God they are ignorant of, the unknown God. 
He says in the times, in verse 30, he says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That verse right there is comparable to what he says in Romans chapter 1, the forbearance of God, the sins of the Old Testament, the sins of the past. But he goes on here, he says, Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The one who will stand as the judge is alive. And God is assuring every man of this in that he raised him from the dead. Of course, Romans chapter 2 and verse 16. Here Paul is speaking about the law of God even in, in, in the Gentiles. They understand what is right and wrong because of their conscience, which is the proof of the existence of God. God has put this in man. Man instinctively knows that some things are wrong. And though he may try to re-educate, to re-warp, and to do away with God's law, it still is wrong, and people know that. What is man always trying to do? He's trying to rid himself of the consequences of sin. If man could just get rid of, get rid of guilt and shame, oh man, he'd have it made. That's what he thinks. And so he's got chemicals, re-education, drugs, anything, amusement, just to try to escape what? <laughs> the shame and the guilt of sin. I'm sorry, you can't get rid of that. That's God's design. But here in Romans chapter 2, he says there, <clears throat> For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another, he says, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of man by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The judge is alive and well. And there's a day coming when he is going to judge. Of course, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, there, that whole passage speaking of the judgment to come. Resurrection is certainly the assurance that God is going to judge the world. And of course, the tribulations and the persecutions of believers, and this is how he's encouraging the believers in 2 Thessalonians, because you're putting up with an awful lot. You're undergoing much. You're, he says, we are glorying in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. That day is coming. The judge is alive and well. And God has appointed a day. The resurrection is the assurance that God will judge the world. And of course, then finally here, the resurrection is the guarantee of the believer's own personal resurrection. Spoke about this in Romans chapter 6 in the Bible study hour. We are united with Christ, and if we are united with Him in His death, we will also be in the likeness of His resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of the guarantee of our resurrection because of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians, if you, have, if, you have, if you have your Bible, you can turn to that passage from verse 50 on through 58. He says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Well, folks, that poses a real problem for us in our human bodies, in our sin-cursed bodies on this earth. we got a problem. But guess what? Where we have a problem, God has a solution. And Paul says in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. Let me, sh- let, let me share with you something that was not previously known, which God has revealed. Here it is. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Let me stop right there and just pause. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. May I say that that is indiscriminate. All of the dead shall be raised incorruptible, some to everlasting judgment and some to eternal life. And those who proceed into everlasting judgment have incorruptible bodies. They will burn forever. That ought to cause you to fear and tremble. Hell is not something that just burns and consumes and you're gone. No. The bodies of the dead are raised incorruptible, capable of experiencing eternal judgment. And those of us who are saved are capable of experiencing the eternal joys of heaven. He goes on, the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. What did Job say? Though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job spoke of this truth back in the Old Testament. This corruptible, this body, and believe me, Job experienced the corruptibility of the human body. So when this corruptible shall have put on again corruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Ha! There's that verse in the Old Testament. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? He has taken the sting away from death. He has taken victory away from the grave. The grave is not victorious. Death has lost its sting. And because of this, how ought we to live? Well, he tells us, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. They'll be there when you get there. Resurrection is the guarantee of the future resurrection of the believer. 1 Corinthians 6.14, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by His own power. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, Knowing that He which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. It's going to be a great day. Resurrection. Now, we've just looked at some of the significant points here of the resurrection. The important thing is, are you a child of God? 
if this message doesn't make a, per, a personal application, then it's just knowledge. Do, are you a child of God? Are you saved? All of this is great for the believer, and we rejoice in this. Listen, we, we come on Resurrection Sunday, and we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look at the death of Jesus Christ not as something to mourn, but as something that actually is that which brings us great joy. Because by the death of Christ, we are reconciled to God. And He ever lives. Make intercession for us. Do you know Him as your Savior? And if you do, then as Paul says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're going to meet Him. We're going to see Him someday. Are you eager for that day? Or does it fill your soul with dread? I trust that that is a day that you look forward to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we serve a risen Lord. Lord, we thank you for your plan of salvation, sending your own Son to this earth to seek and to save the lost, Lord, to die in our place, taking upon Himself the wrath of God for our sin. Lord, we thank You so much for the resurrection, which is a demonstration of Your acceptance and approval of His redemptive work. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring the Scriptures to bear in their lives, Lord, open the eyes of their understanding that they might receive the truth. Lord, for those of us who are called by your name, Lord, may we be faithful. May we keep our eyes on the things that are eternal, and may our lives be lived in such a way that you are glorified. And Lord, that someday when we stand before you, we will be delighted. Lord, that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to be faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.